0: Now, let me tell you why we're going to be in Acts chapter 11 today. Next week, we are starting a series in the um, book of Romans, the New Testament book of Romans. It's Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and that letter to the church in Rome is um, probably… I mean, so, you know, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Well, they're all my favorite books of the Bible, you know I mean? But if you were going to talk about a, a book of the Bible or a letter of the Bible that has impacted the church… Generation after generation, and has and has marked the major movements in our church history. It is the letter to the Romans, and so we'll start that next week. Everybody, bring your Bibles, and if you got a four-colored pen, just good. You get bring that. Um, you can buy them at Walmart for you know the for. Anyways. pagan group I'm talking to. So first hour, they knew all about the four-colored pen. So, um, so but bring that because we're going to, we, we are, we want to walk through it. I think it's going to be a great series. But, but it, by way of introduction, part of what I want to do is I want to introduce Romans this morning by introducing Paul, who is the author of Romans. And so, um, there are a lot of places you could go in Paul's writings or in the, um, the, the book of Acts that Luke wrote to introduce Paul. You, you could introduce Paul from him being a, um, a persecutor of the church, you know, and he, he's there when Stephen is stoned. You could introduce Paul by his uh, Damascus Road conversion. Um, but what I want to do is I want to look at Paul when Paul comes back onto the scene as a major player in the church, and so there are several things converging all at once right here at the end of Acts chapter 11 that are actually, um, they're miraculous, they're, they're mind-blowing. They're, um, it, it, it's overwhelming to see what God's Spirit is doing and nobody in the church up to that point would have planned it or could have planned it. And that God is going to... Um, blow the doors open, if you will, in this gospel going to the world in ways that the the church up to that point couldn't have imagined. And so, that's where I want to pick up. We're we're going to be in um, Acts chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 19. We're going to just walk through it together. Here's what it says. So, Acts 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered... Because of the persecution that rose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So when you see Hellenists, most contexts, you can say, okay, that's pagan Jew that speaks Greek. That's what we're talking about. I mean, pagan Gentile that speaks Greek. And then it says in verse 20, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Well, so Luke begins this little section, and he's saying, okay, here's the time marker. The time marker is those that have been scattered because of the persecution of Stephen, which he means is the stoning of Stephen, which he means when Saul was there and they stoned Stephen to death and then brought the clothes of Stephen and laid him before Saul's feet, who we later know as Paul, and then he approves of it all. And then there's this great persecution that begins to take place for the believers that live in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, these Jewish believers and what you find out is, so Stephen, he's a deacon, uh, chapter 6, he gets arrested because of this thing that happens in a synagogue, and then they, uh, he stands before him and he preaches a sermon, and then they, they stone him and all of those things. And then it tells us in chapter 8, not only that Saul approved of it, but in 8, 4, it says, and those that were scattered, so they're fleeing for their life, the, the, the persecution's coming nobody's safe, they begin to flee, and it says in chapter 8, verse 4, it says, when they scattered, they went about preaching. Now, to tell you what's interesting about this. If you went to the beginning of Acts, uh, the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus speaks to his disciples, and he says this. He says, you're going to receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when you do, he says, you're going to be my witnesses, and then he gives them sort of this outline, and this is the outline for Acts. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, and then you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth, well, you see that play out. It happens in Jerusalem, and then they go to Samaria after the, immediately after the scattering and the persecution, and then uh, all of Judea gets filled. And now what we see in Acts eleven nineteen is that the gospel is now going to cross the bounds of the Israel border and go from the Jews to the pagans. And that's what's taking place. And you know this because Antioch, This is Antioch of Syria. There's a couple of Antiochs in the New Testament. This is Antioch of Syria. It's in modern-day Turkey, the southeasternmost part of Turkey. Um, If you could go there, I don't advise going there. It's not a super safe place to go. But if you went there, you could still see, you can see the remains, the the archaeology of the old city Antioch, and then there's the modern-day city Antioch. It's right there on the Mediterranean Sea. And how you'd get there is you'd drive down to Houston, go to George Bush uh, uh, Airport, you'd fly to Tel Aviv, all right? You get to Tel Aviv, which is ancient Joppa, which the, the, the scene uh, just before this is where Peter is. He's in Joppa when Jesus comes and tells us to go to Cornelius. But anyway, so you, you fly there to Tel Aviv, and then you would drive north. You'd rent a car, and you'd drive north right along the Mediterranean Sea. And in about Fifty miles, you'd come to a place called Haffa. And then on the right, you'd see Mount Carmel and get the Mediterranean on the, on the left. And you keep going north. And another 50 or 80 miles, you're going to come to Beirut. And there, you would have passed through Tyre. You'd have passed through Sidon. You're in the Phoenician area. You're off to the left into the Mediterranean. The, the island of, of Cyprus is out there. And then you just keep heading north along the coast, and about 150 miles, you're going to run right into Antioch. And it's, it was at the time the third largest city in the Roman Empire. The only two larger, you had Rome and you had Alexandria. Rome was the seat of the emperor. Alexandria, you would think of as the seat of the scholarship, and uh, Antioch was the seat of depravity. It was like Las Vegas on uh, uh, steroids okay that 's what it was and, and part of it was because you had at the very center a temple to um, uh, dedicated to a, a goddess named daphne and that 's where a whole bunch of weird stuff that you hear about temple priestesses and Things that would happen around there that you can talk, you can, you know, there's kids in here. I won't I won't explain it to you, um, but when your kids ask you questions on the way home, now you can explain it to them. Uh, but the morals of Daphne, okay? This is this was the euphemism for the depravity of the day, and they were. They were talking about Antioch. So, so, think about this. So, huge city, hustle and bustle, major port city, all kinds of, I mean, every, you know, all kinds of wickedness taking place. At least five nationalities and cultures come together there in Antioch. I mean, it is the center of immorality and paganism. And this is the place we're going to find out, this place, this place. This is going to be the first place that believers in Jesus will be called Christians. It will be the place, it will be where the church is that actually becomes the center of the church and will launch, be the catalyst to worldwide mission when they send Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. I mean, it's it's this place. And so what, what happens is so back in verse 19, the end of it, it says they they so originally they're scattered and they'd go and they'd take the gospel message, and they only took it to people who believed the Bible. To so no one except the Jews. So when they were taking initially the gospel message, they were taking the gospel message. To Jewish people who believed the Bible, they believed the Old Testament. Even the Samaritans, when when Philip goes to Samaria, when he goes there, that the, you have Samaritans. They believe in the Jewish scriptures. They interpreted them differently, but they knew of the Bible. They believed it. You have Cornelius in ten. He's a Gentile, but he's a God-fearer, which means he read the Bible and he believed it. All the while, you have the gospel going to people who believe the Bible, who believe that God is the one true God, and that's where the gospel has been going to until you get to Antioch. And you have these men and women who were scattered. And for the very first time, they begin to take the gospel to people who not only are they not Jewish... They're fully Greek, they're fully pagan, they're fully polytheistic. They believe that Zeus is God or Jupiter is God and they, you know, that lives up on Mount Olympus. I mean, that's what did, I mean, their myth, our mythology is their full blown belief system. These believers who were scattered, instead of this persecution sort of wilting their faith, it ignited them. It set them on fire. And they showed up and they began to tell the story. And they began to tell of their Bible and their scripture and of their God. And the Holy Spirit was doing something as they began to proclaim the Son of God, that Jesus came, uh, that, that, that God became man and dwelt among us. And it says they proclaimed the Logos, the Word And the Spirit of God did something in Antioch that that absolutely blew their mind. These pagan, polytheistic Gentiles came to faith. They believed in Jesus. They were saved. And the result is amazing. I mean, this actually becomes. You go to chapter 13. You look at who the leaders are. You can trace down their backgrounds. You see that this church not only is it the first Gentile church, but it's multi-ethnic and multinational and multi-class, or people from all different social classes. And and there they are. And that this is this is history making. And it's here that they first are going to be called Christians. Part of it may be because. As the people in Antioch looked at what was going on, and some of these people came and they began to share the gospel, and other people were saved, and they started forming church, and they looked and goes, "We don't have a category. These people don't fit a category. So we'll call them Christians," which means "Christ ones," or "Jesus people." Well, that's very probably derogatory. Well, News of what's happening in Antioch reaches Jerusalem, and um, so Jerusalem says, "Hey, and so you got James, and you got the, you know, you got all the, the apostles, and um, you know the, the high church there." I said, "Well, we need to know what's going on in Antioch." So what they do is they, they're going to send um, somebody to go and inspect what's happening in Antioch. So, so look at uh, verse 22. It says this. So the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them, exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, And he was, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, And a great many people were added to the Lord. So remember, this is Antioch. This is not, by the way, what's going on in Antioch was not the result of any apostle going to Antioch. It wasn't the result of the Jerusalem church, you know, sending anybody to Antioch. It's regular people like you and me. I mean, you hear this all the time. Well, these are just regular, normal people. Actually, they are. They're just like you and me. And they're running for their life, and yet everywhere they go, they begin telling the story of what's happened in this Jesus and how he's changed their life. And so it's just this church planted from just like plain old um, evangelism from you know, one person to another, and the Spirit of God in the middle of that, and somebody believed, in it, and all of a sudden you've got a church. So, Barnabas goes up there. Now, Barnabas is just his nickname. It, the nickname is Brother of Encouragement. His real name you find out in Acts 4 is Joseph. And he, um, he's the guy, in uh, the, the, the apostles, they called him Brother of Encouragement. They called him Barnabas. He's the guy that sowed his field and then came and brought all the money and laid it at the apostles' um, feet. Anyway, so they, they send this guy to go inspect what's going on. And he does. And, and, and Barnabas is the, is the perfect choice and I want you to see why in verse 23. L- look at what it says in verse 23. It says, when, when he came and he saw the grace of God, notice two things. One, he was glad. Now, what do you to think about that for a second? It, to, to, glad literally means glad. I mean, like, he rejoiced in it. And I think that's remarkable. And you know Why? Because man, he's been in Jerusalem. He's been where the high church is. He's been where James is, who's the who's the um, half brother of Jesus. I mean, he's rubbed shoulders with Peter. He, I mean, this is where he's been, and that's the center of of. Christian doctrine and Christian theology and they've already fought some of these battles and now this crazy thing is happening up in Antioch where just regular people went and told the gospel to other regular people and they got saved and now they're having church and not only these people weren't even Jewish, they'd never heard of the Bible, and I'm sure they're meeting on Sundays and they have no idea what they're even supposed to do. And one guy said, well, I think we're supposed to sing. Another guy said, well, what are we supposed to sing? guess I don't know. So, well, I can't sing any of the songs I know. I'm not here. You know, this is a worship leader. You know, he's kind of like, kind of like Will Ferrell and Elf. You know, you just, you know, he just makes the song up as he goes. You know, I'm singing um, to the Lord, I, I, they don't know what to do. They have no idea, and there's no New Testament. And you got these guys going, Well, this is the Old Testament says this. And I heard, heard Peter tell this sermon one time. And, and so they're working it out. And so Barnabas goes up there. And instead of being like concerned and, and freaked out and saying, Oh, no, no, you got to stop doing all this. This is not what it looks like in Jerusalem. You know what Barnabas is? Man, he's glad. He rejoices. He sees, oh man, God's doing something here. And that is so exciting. And that's something to be rejoiced over, even though it looks vastly different than the way Jerusalem looks. And these people are rough and they're tumbly and they're dirty and they don't know the right language. And, but it's okay because, man, God's doing something in their midst. But it doesn't stop there. Not only was he glad, but it says he exhorted them. It's this great word. It's this word in the Greek, parakaleo. Para means to come alongside or, or, to, or to join with or, or um, to, to encourage. And then you've got exhorted, which is this um, calling, um, uh, to call, to, it's a, it, to have authority over or, or to instruct. And so on the one hand, I mean, he's, he's cheering them on. This is great. I love this. And on the other hand, he's, he's instructing and he's guiding them and he's steering them and, and, and he wants to keep this thing going, and this, this incredible movement, and, and, and he's, but, but he's pointing them in a direction, this steadfast purpose, he says. This, this heart of the matter Helping them know what this means, that they've been saved. And now, as the language will say, as Paul will write later, that they're in Christ, and Christ is in them, and they're the body of Christ, and this, is, this church is the bride. and What it means. What it means that the Spirit of God lives in you and indwells you and is transforming you. And he's, and he's exhorting them. And the result is that more and more Were added, and this is where they were first called Christians. You know, I I would say this: as believers, all of us, we're all called to a Barnabas kind of ministry. I mean, so Barnabas—he's exhorting. I mean, he's not—he's not preaching, although he probably did some preaching. It's not necessarily teaching, although certainly he was doing some teaching. But, man, Barnabas is a guy who, the brother of encouragement, I mean, he came alongside this. He was glad and celebrated and rejoiced in and, you know, overlooked all the weird things that were happening and that they would mature out of and was leading them and directing them, caring for them. You know, so I didn't plan this. My intention was I want to show you where Paul comes into the scene. Barnabas is going to go get Paul um, here in a couple of verses. But as I was thinking about this, I'm seeing what it is that Barnabas does and how he, he comes into this, this thing that just by all accounts would have felt totally out of control. I mean, where do you do and how do you where do you start? Well many was cheering for them. He was encouraging them, he was instructing them. And as I think about, so we've been talking about City Fest, and Jeff was just talking about it up there. And, and, and listen, I, I don't know what your thought about it is. You know, I mean, so it, it, when you think about things like that, you think of Luis Palau, the things that come to my mind, you know, are like these. Um, old footage of, of, of Billy Graham revivals, or Luis Palau revivals, and, you know, that happened in the 60s and the 70s, and massive stadiums are filled with people, and this, this, um, the gospel's presented and a, in a, in a call to trust Christ, and so many people come forward, and all these things, and I always thought, man, I, that's awesome. I, you know, and um, I meet people all the time who tell me, you know what, I, so how do you come to Christ? And, and, so I say all the time. I've met a lot of people. Say, so you know what? Well, I. I was watching a Billy Graham crusade on television. It was a rerun. Which let that blow your mind for a minute. The spirit moved like back then in real time, and then in memorax up here. And but my friend Russ Knight. So I don't know what you think about it. But I'll tell you, so uh, Jeff Bice, Ricky Garner, um, some other pastors from this community went up to Grand Rapids last year to see this thing in action. And they went on a weekend during their City Fest there, and it's the same group of people, and um, Andrew Palau, Luis Palau's son's there, and he gives this gospel message. And listen, Grand Rapids is a lot like Tyler, it's a little bigger than Tyler, but man, it has seminary and Bible college and publishing houses and nonprofit ministries. And I mean, it did very much similar to Tyler, very much a Christian culture. And yet, lots and lots of people that are far away from God and not connected with the church and haven't trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And, and, and thousands of people responded to this thing. And, and Jeff and Ricky, I'll tell you, they, they were overwhelmed. They, they could not believe what they were saying. And if the church has learned anything in the last 50 years, 60 years, it's that these revivals, as great as they are, as much of a splash as they make, really the the value is, one, what happens in those moments. But, But is the church prepared after that to welcome and to disciple and to train and to exhort new believers? I mean, is the church willing to be glad about what has happened and ready to exhort. I mean, so here's the statistics. I don't know how statistics, I don't know how they come up with this. 5,000 people, I don't know. So it's 4,000 people. So it's 3,000. So it's 1,000. So it's 10,000. I tell you, as a church, we, we have this great opportunity. I think we have this calling as a church to be people who, you know what, we get glad about this and we are prepared to exhort. And so this, this thing, this, so this thing that's coming up a week from Wednesday night here, Mark Middleberg, he's this guy, he's a, um, uh, works with the, the Houston Baptist. He's their uh, executive director of strategic evangelism. Um, he's a hilarious guy. He co-writes with Lee Strobel, wrote this book, Contagious Christianity. As um, Jeff said, he's written a couple of other books with Lee Strobel. And he, he comes, so, you know, on one hand, you go, hey, come to the evangelism training. You know, like nobody's coming to that. I get it. But this is like, hey, come prepared to be exhorted. Come figure out how to have a, be a normal person in a normal conversation that has a conversation with somebody else about spiritual things. And, and what it is, is it, it'll provide you some training so that, so that when that thing happens, this city fest thing, and they make the appeal, and there'll be several of them during the weekend that as people step forward and the, the gospel is proclaimed and the Spirit of God moves and people are granted faith to believe, that we'd have people. We'd have people right there, sort of in the spiritual delivery room that, you know, as is, is, is people are being born again right there. And we want you to be there. Johnny Russell, who's one of our elders, is one of the point people for, and, and so here's what it's called, so don't hold this against me. I didn't name it um, they, they're called uh um, oh, I had to write it down because I, I I keep trying to forget the name they're called festival friends, okay I don't know I, 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 but that's all right. Don't hold that. I mean, so whatever it is, F squared, I don't care. So you be a part of that deal. Johnny Russell, who's one of our elders, is going to be one of the point people. Man, I really want you to be there. I, I want us as a church to like be there. And I also want some, of, I want you to pray about it. I, we're praying for two or three or four couples in our church that after this deal's over and they are new believers, you know, running, that we'd have a, a new believer class here at Bethel designed for anticipating ready for folks that might come in the doors here as new believers two or three or four couples that would do that and we'll get you all the material and help train you. We're gonna do that across all of our campuses and all meet together and figure out how to do this thing. I just want I want us to be ready to exhort I want us to be people who are glad and who are ready to exhort those that become new believers in Christ, that we could cheer for that, and then we'd be ready to instruct and, and guide and disciple. Well, back to the text. It's, what's happening is truly amazing in Antioch. In fact, one writer, he says it this way. He says, the ministry of Antioch was going so well that it was too much for Barnabas. He was a fine man, but he knew his limitations. Perhaps Barnabas lay awake one night, burdened, tired, exploring his options, and in the last three days, he'd led ten Bible studies, conducted five baptisms, and shared the gospel countless times. And he says, I need help. I can't keep it up. And so his thoughts turn to Paul, and he immediately begins praying for God's guidance. Maybe that's how it happened. Look at verse 25. So Barnabas, in in light of all these things taking place, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That word means to go hunt him out. He had to go hunt for him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, at this time, so Barnabas has to go look for Saul because Saul, he's been off the beaten path for several years. So, at least three years, maybe as many as 10 years. The, the chronology gets a little fuzzy as you try to put it together. But what happens is Paul gets converted. So, he'd been out to ravage the church, to kill Christians. He gets converted. He gets excited, goes back into Jerusalem, says, hey, wait, wait a minute. I met Jesus, and now I'm one of you guys. And and, um, and they think he's like part of the, you know, the Jewish CIA or something, trying to infiltrate them, uh, and they, they're, they're terrified of him. And so what they do is they end up sending him away, and he ends up back in Tarsus. And you find out in Galatians, Paul says, while I was in Tarsus, I spent three years. I wasn't, I didn't, I, I wasn't trained by any man or any rabbi or anything like that. During that three years, through revelation, Jesus himself taught me did this three-year seminary, and he got an MDiv from Jesus. That's awesome, right? So that's where he is. And, so, and, and, and Barnabas, he says, well, man, this is bigger than we can handle. We need somebody. So he, the Lord leads him to go find Saul, who later will be called Paul in Acts 13. And he goes and he gets him and says, man, you got to come down here. You're not going to believe what's happening. And so Paul's brilliant mind, having been disciplined and shaped and, 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 and um, uh, illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Companies, Barnabas, they go there, and it's this perfect team. you got, you got Barnabas, man. He's an encourager, and he's rooting for people, and he's exhorting them. And then you got Paul, you know, sort of razor-sharp intellect, who's this master teacher. And there they are, and for a year they start doing these things. And leading the church and teaching the church and building up the church. And they become a catalyst for world missions. And, and this, this is where they said, Oh, these people, those are Jesus people, those are Christ's ones. They're the Christians. An old church history, Eusebius a church historian tells the story of a guy. Um, named Sanctus. He was a believer. He was from Lyon, France, and uh, he's, uh, he's in trouble for, for preaching Jesus. The, the guys, uh, the, the, the military there arrest him. Uh, they want him to stop. They want him to renounce Jesus. They're mocking him. They're making fun of him. Um, they, can, they bring an interrogator in. They're interrogating this guy. And they're treating him cruelly. They, they, they want to try to get him to say something foul or vile or blasphemous. I mean, they want him to renounce all this. The guy gets who, who, who? what nation do you belong to? And Sanctus says, I am a Christian. So what city do you live in? I am a Christian. They get mad. Are you a slave? Are you a free man? I'm a Christian. It was his only reply over and over and over. And the more determined they came, the more determined they were to break him, the more settled he was in his resolve. And Eusebius writes that the last... Words on his lips the witnesses heard before his last breath was, I am a Christian. Isn't that great? That's who I am. That's my identity. Well, look at the end of this. Let's wrap this up. So, so verse 27, it's now in these days. Prophets came down from Jerusalem, which actually we would think about it as up. But Jerusalem's high. They're coming down to the sea level. They came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So, the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so what, what, what's happening is, is there's this guy Agabus. He comes, and he's a prophet. And remember Ephesians 2 says that the, that the foundation of the church are the apostles and the prophets. But you don't have to keep building a foundation. So in the New Testament, you have this foundation being laid before the, uh, the, the New Testament is completed. And there he is, and in, in, in the way that prophets, did, they got immediate revelation from God. Later, teachers and, and, and believers and, and disciples, they would get a mediated revelation from God through the New Testament. They hear from God through the New Testament. Agabus heard from God through the Spirit says, hey, a famine's coming. And so their response was, hey, we got to help support because uh, the, the Jerusalem, the, the church is not only in Jerusalem suffering persecution, but, man, the famine is coming. These people aren't going to be able to eat. And, and we've been blessed so much by the, by the gospel message that's come to us from them that we want to send back to them. We want to help them. And so Paul will begin to go around, and he He tells the Roman church, he writes, hey, I've been trying to get to you, but I I can't come to you until I go to Jerusalem and take this gift because he goes around all the Gentile churches and collects a gift so that he can take to them. One writer, as far as I know, it's the first charitable act of this nature in all of recorded history. One race of people collecting money to help another people. No wonder they were first called Christians at Antioch. As we come away from this, one, I want you to know, um, the idea that God would do what he did in Antioch was far beyond the comfort zone or thinking of anybody in Jerusalem at the time. Secondly, the idea that God would use Paul, the one who had persecuted the church, the one who had caused the scattering in the first place that resulted in the church at Antioch, that he would actually be called back as a believer to lead that and to be the first missionary sent from that church so that the gospel would go over the entire world. You can't. Can you, can you believe that? If you just sat down and told Peter that in the very beginning, he'd be like, nope, that's not it. Uh, d- 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 no, he's not, he doesn't do it that way. Who could have imagined all these things interconnected and that God is orchestrating every single step? You know, I think as Christians, we, we have to be really careful we don't, you know, just automatically look at something and go, you know, what, guy's not doing that. He's not doing that because it's not comfortable to me and I don't really like it. And maybe, maybe not. Thirdly, it's, it's amazing that in this cosmopolitan place, this, this opulent Antioch, this, this place, the, the, the ground zero of, of paganism, that this would be where God decides to move the epicenter of the church and to begin the to, to all the world part of the story. And it was there that they were known as Christians. They were known as Christians because they fit no other category in their community and so in a search to describe who these people are, why these people are they were called Christians now listen, we throw that around all the time now but are you known as a Christ one is that who you are, are you a Christ one are you a a Jesus people person I'm not talking Christian culture I'm talking about is your identity that you belong to Christ. Here's a story. Although somebody in the first service was telling me they did the math and then it's got me all messed up, but it's my conclusion, so here we go, All right. But it's a story about Alexander the Great, and it's Eusebius that tells it, and take Eusebius with a grain of salt. But But he tells the story, Alexander the Great, and you know, he's this, I mean, Alexander, the great, you know, by the age of 23, he'd conquered the world, okay? He's, you know, greatest leader that there was of that day or any day. And there is a guy, he finds out as he's getting, as he's up, he's conquered the world, he's still on his agenda, and there's a, news comes to him that there is a man in his company that is, um, he's becoming known As a coward. So Alexander the Great says, well, what's his name? He says, well, you're not going to believe this. His name's Alexander. And his mom named him after you. When you just started out. So Alexander the Great calls this Alexander the Coward into his office or tent or whatever it was. And he says, I hear your name is Alexander, and you were named for me? And this guy's trembling, and he says, yes, sir, my name's Alexander, and I was named for you. So Alexander the Great looks at him and says, then either be brave or change your name. Now, here's the great news. Jesus doesn't say that to us, you know? I either live holy and perfect as I am, or change your name, He doesn't have to do that. Because He's in us and we're in Him and we're covered in Him. But He does exhort us, does encourage us, does bid us, does call us, does empower us to live a life that would bear His name. He calls you and bids you to become who you are in Him. So be encouraged. Hear that call. That you're a believer this morning. That's who you are. You're a Christ one. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you do what only you can do.